0: Oh my goodness, it's 2019. Isn't that odd how time flies so fast? 2019. And this is the time of year when, let's just be honest, we start to kind of look at those bulging waistlines after a lot of Christmas feasting, and we start to make some new commitments about eating a little bit leaner and exercising a little bit more. In fact, in our office here, we have traditionally had a kind of a, a table that's constantly filled with snacks, and somebody decided we all needed to lose a few pounds. I guess because there's been a, a, a moratorium on snacks, like the table is bare. So we we are somebody's trying to help us do a little bit better with our New Year's commitments this year. But it is a time where we start to we think about rebooting, right? We think. About about restarting we think about a fresh beginning it's a brand new year in fact I looked at Inc magazine this week and they published the top 10 New Year's resolutions they surveyed thousands of people and I want to share with you what the top 10 New Year's resolutions are for 2019 number one 71 percent of the people said diet and eating healthier is the number one resolution. Number 2, 65% of the people said exercise is what they want to do in the new year. Number 3, 54% said they want to lose weight. Number 4, 32% they want to save more and spend less. Number 5, 26% said they wanted to learn a new skill or hobby. Number 6, 21% said they want to quit smoking. Number seven, 17% said they want to read more. Isn't that true? We're watching so much more than we're reading. So I thought that was interesting. I bet that's new this year. 15% said they want to find another job. 15% said they want to drink less alcohol. And 13% said they want to spend more time with friends and family. Okay, looking at that list, how many of you made one or more of those resolutions for yourself this year? Yeah, quite a few. We, we kind of want to start a re- reboot the year. Do you know that 60% of people make resolutions? I think about 60% of you raised your hands. So 40% don't make resolutions. And do you know that only 8% are actually successful in achieving their resolutions? And in fact, 50% of those who make resolutions fail by January 31st. OK, let's be honest. How many of you have already failed at your resolutions? <laughs> I have. Okay, I'm with you in that. So, But it's interesting. So considering how many of these goals that we make are related to health, one Portland fitness gym, membership, membership, whatever, fitness group, sent out a very aggressive email this year, a very aggressive marketing piece, trying to champion people into keeping their fitness goals. And I think you'll enjoy this. They sent out a marketing piece called the year of you this is what it says. The new year is right around the corner, and you 're either going to own it this year or the year is going to own you it 's a hundred percent your choice it 's in your hands that's the first thing. Simply by taking all of the responsibility and putting it on your shoulders, you become empowered. Next, you take that feeling of empowerment, of invincibility, the feeling that you can run through a wall, and you take action. You take action like you've never taken action before. You become prolific. You become consistent, and you let no obstacle stand in your way. No matter what, no more pity parties, no more whining about anything. You are in control of you did that motivate you? <laughs> I kind of thought that sounded like something that came from a boot camp for superheroes. But you know, unfortunately, change isn't that easy, is it? It's just not that easy. It doesn't, we're not motivated by a momentary pep talk or a, a passing thought of willpower. It's just not what really changes us. We need more than that because we know that change is really a heart thing. Now in the moment, we might think, yes, I want to accomplish one or more of these 10 things on my resolution list. But then that moment passes, and unless there's a deeper sense of change within the desires of our hearts, we're probably not going to change. We have to experience something much deeper. And when we think about our lives, I think what we really want to change is we really want to break the strongholds of addiction in our lives. We want to heal the emotional wounds that we feel in our relationships with each other. We want to forgive wrongs. We want to be more selfless. We want to be able to love the unlovely. We want to be able to discipline the appetites of our own flesh. We, we want, actually, to be more like Jesus in the end. Isn't that what we really want? But in order to do so, we have to rely on God's power— we, we don't have the power within us to be more like Jesus. We need to rely upon the power of God in order to have a change of attitude and to change those unbridled behaviors that we give into so often. Did you notice though that on that list, there's nothing about God on that list? Nobody said, I want to pray more in 2019. I want to read God's word more in 2019. I want more uninhibited worship more joy, more hope, more spiritual peace, more kindness towards my family members, more opportunities to serve other people. That didn't show up on the list. And maybe that's why we fail so quickly at making our resolutions, because we're we're looking inward to our own power, our own control, instead of looking upward at God and saying, God, what is it that you want to do in me in 2019? What are your goals for me? How can I avail myself of the power of your spirit to be transformed to be more like Jesus Christ in this year to come? It's interesting because over the past few months we've been studying Genesis. And the one thing that God has reminded us in Genesis is that he is in control. He's reminded us he's the one who's made the earth upon which we're standing. He is the one who breathed breath into the first man that he created. He is the one who is working in all things to bring his redemptive plan into human history. He is sovereign. He is moving history forward according to his divine plans. And when we looked at the lives of Abraham and Jacob, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, we were reminded that these were just ordinary men, weren't they? They were men who had feet of clay, just like we have feet of clay, and yet they trusted in God to do extraordinary things. They experienced amazing, amazing miracles and experiences of God in the midst of very ordinary lives. They were in all kinds of challenging situations, oftentimes totally out of control of their own lives. I mean, think about Abraham and Sarah having a baby, or Isaac laying on the altar, or Joseph in captivity in Egypt. I mean, think about what we learned as we looked at their lives, and yet God was working in all of those circumstances to bring his best plans forward, to to glorify himself and to be for the good of those that he loves. They learn to trust God. They learn to obey his word. They learn to believe in his promises. And today we're going to turn the page to Exodus. It's been a long period of silence now where God hasn't manifested himself to his people. Many years have passed, but he has been faithfully bringing his promises to Abraham to fruition. He's multiplied the descendants of Abraham in this span of about 350 years when we open the book of Exodus. He's multiplied from Abraham and Sarah's one Isaac, he has multiplied into 2.5 million people living in Egypt. He's been faithful to Abraham. And then the day has come now wherein the Pharaoh who knew Joseph has passed away, and that Pharaoh after him, and that there's been many Pharaohs over that period of years, and as the Pharaohs have come and gone, they have forgotten about Joseph, and the new Pharaoh we find is really threatened by how hardy and vigorous the Israelites have become as they are thriving in the land, so he wants to enslave them into hard labor. So as we open the pages of Exodus, we find God's people heavily oppressed in a very difficult circumstance crying out to God for deliverance. Now, maybe today, it's a brand new year, it's a brand new month, but maybe today you've come in and you don't have a brand new circumstance. Maybe you have something really, really difficult that you are walking through right now in your own life. Maybe for you, 2019 is really still a very unknown year. Maybe there's something scary that you're facing. It could be a health issue. It could be a marriage that's really gone dry. It could be a child who is wayward, who is not walking with the Lord. It could be a work situation, which seems very precarious. It could be your finances. Whatever it is, my guess is that most of us have walked into the room this morning Maybe there's a new circumstance that's arisen over Christmas break, but maybe you've walked in with something. You're in the midst of a chapter of your life that it hasn't been finished yet, and you're just not quite sure how things are going to turn out. And I've been praying for you that when we came back together today, that, that you would be encouraged to know that God does really big things out of small acts of faith. And that he is faithful, as we just sang about, and he will continue the good work. He will, he will complete the good work. He will continue it and bring it to completion, that good work that he has begun in you. And 2019 is going to be part of that great work in you. He is working to bring out his best purposes in you through whatever difficulties that you're facing. And I want to challenge you today. Will you believe it? And will you respond to him in faith? Because what we're going to see as we look at the first two chapters of Exodus is we're going to see people, ordinary people in very difficult circumstances, who took small steps of faith and watched God do great, mighty things. So today we're going to look at Pharaoh first, a man who didn't have faith. Um, we're going to look in at chapter 1, verses 8 through 14, and we're going to see how Pharaoh fears God's people he's afraid. And then we're going to look at the midwives who revered God's power and responded in a very difficult situation in faith, Exodus 1, 15 through 22. And then we're going to look at Moses's parents, and we're going to see how they trusted in God's plan, Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. So are you ready to dive in? Open your Bibles with me if you have them on your laps, and let's look at how Pharaoh fears God's people. If you remember the conclusion of Genesis, we have Joseph's family and they're settled into Egypt at that time and they're treated as honored guests. They're given a portion of land to live in called Goshen. It's outside of the city. Now, don't think that they were given this amazing piece of land because the Egyptians were so lovey and generous. That is not true. The Egyptians detested shepherds. And so they gave them this land that was out of town so that they wouldn't be near the cities. But the land was lush and fertile, and the Israelites flourished there. But still, Egypt was never meant to be their homeland. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would live in the land of Canaan. That was the land that he had given to his own people. So even after Joseph died, they set his coffin up in the land as a memorial to remind the Israelites that Egypt was not their home. And one day, they would go back to the land of Canaan. They would bring Joseph and his coffin back with them, and they would bury Joseph with their forefathers. God wanted them to know, this is not where you're supposed to be long-term. So in verse 6, or verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Let us come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land." I wondered, did this new pharaoh not take history in Egypt's school? Had he forgotten about Joseph's heroic leadership? Had he forgotten how millions of people's lives had been saved when during the famine Joseph had the wisdom from God to build the storehouses and people came from all over and how Egypt actually became wealthy during that time because they had food to feed all the neighboring people? Had he forgotten that? And as Israel's population has grown, they have become a great source of blessing to Egypt because they're a powerful labor force in the land. They are an integral part of the Egyptian economy. And now, because their population is thriving, this new pharaoh is afraid that if they were to align with Egypt's enemies, that they would turn against them. And because of their numbers, that they would... they would. They would trounce Egypt, that they would come against them in war. But what Pharaoh doesn't understand is that his battle is really not against Israel. His battle is against Israel's God. As history is going to unfold, we're going to see that Pharaoh is an anti-God figure who is repeatedly putting himself in direct opposition to God's redemptive plans. Pharaoh's ultimate sin here is not that he took the Hebrew people and turned them into slaves. His sin is that he is trying to stop their multiplication. And since God is the one who is increasing their numbers, remember his creation mandate— be fruitful and multiply. He told his people, be fruitful and multiply. God is increasing their numbers. And, and so when what Pharaoh is doing is he is setting himself up in a war against God himself. But God has a plan that can never be thwarted by the deeds of evil men or by the evil deeds of men. And so verse 11, it says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pittim and Ramses, But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The Egyptians at that time were using the Israelites to build these storehouses to stockpile ammunition. They um, wanted to fortify their military strength because they had this fear of coming invaders. And so they had this labor force. 2.5 million people was a huge force of energy for their country. And if you can imagine how crazy it is that they're trying to oppress the people and trying to stop their multiplication, they're also trying to weaken their own labor force. And they say that Losing this kind of a labor force would be as if the United States had completely gone dry with oil. It would be that kind of a loss of a resource. And so um, they are, the taskmasters are treating the Israelites ruthlessly in their attempt purely to slow down the population boom. They hope that the women would be so beaten down that they wouldn't be able to bear children, and the men would be so exhausted with hard work that they would actually die. And yet the more they're oppressed, the more they're multiplying. And yet the more they're multiplying, the more they're being oppressed. And not only are they having more babies, but they're also growing in physical strength. They're becoming physically stronger. Behind the scenes, God is actually working in this very difficult circumstance that they're in. He's actually working in them to prepare them to leave Egypt. Physically, they're being strengthened because they're going to need to spend what is going to end up being 40 years because of their own sin in the wilderness traveling to the promised land. They're going to need to be physically strong. So this hard work is strengthening their bodies. But also emotionally, they need to be ready to separate from Egypt. These people had never known any other homeland. I'm sure for them to think of having a promised land somewhere flowing with milk and honey, they can't even imagine it. They've only known Egypt as their home. So this oppressive work, working and this slave labor is also beginning to tear their hearts away from Egypt and getting them ready to want to leave. Remember the promises that God had made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. God had a different plan for his, his people than to live in Egypt all their lives. Remember the plan that he talked to Abraham. He said that I am going to make you into a great nation. He did. He turned them into 2.5 million people 350 years later. He said I am going to bless you. He told them, I have a land for you, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's your land. I'm going to move you into that land. And then the third thing he said was I'm going to make your name great. And that was a promise that he was going to bring the Savior, the Messiah, through the lineage of Abraham. But imagine how difficult it was in this moment for the Israelites to imagine how God is moving to bless them in the midst of this really heightened suffering that they're in. The only tangible evidence that that they have that he is in their midst is that they keep getting pregnant, they keep having babies, and their bodies are miraculously getting stronger. That's all they know. That's the only testimony that they have. And then the more God blesses them, the more the Egyptians are intensifying their brutality against them, and God is also testing their faith, right? He is working in their hearts. Despite their difficult circumstances, he is working to free them from bondage and to bless their lives. We can see it so clearly, can't we? As we look at the story, we see what God is doing behind the scenes of this really, really challenging circumstance, but we have such a hard time seeing it in our own lives, So that's the truth I want us to learn from this first part, is that difficult circumstances do not thwart God's blessing. Difficult circumstances do not thwart God's blessing in your life. The more the Israelites were oppressed, the stronger they became and the more they multiplied. And during all of that time, God was working to prosper his people by building them into a great nation, by leading them to a land that was all their own, and by developing a lineage from which Christ would be born. God was using their suffering to prepare them to leave Egypt and to step into the blessings that he had ordained for them. Too often, I think we mistake our own difficult circumstances as barriers to God's blessing. When hard things come into our lives, we think God can't possibly be blessing me in this. We think that when things are tough and when bad things happen, we believe that God just has lifted his hand from our lives and we think, God, you're far away from me now. Where are you in all of this? But God is always at work. He is always at work in the good, and he is always at work in the bad. He wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. There are no accidents with God, and he uses everything for his glory and for our good, even when we can't see it in the moment, even when we're in one of those chapters of life where we're not sure how it's going to end, but he's still writing his story into our lives. Sometimes we need a change of perspective. We we need to look up. We need to reorient our vision. We need to, to, to lift off of the difficulties and the pressures and the stress and the worries and the fears. And we have to look up and we have to say, God, where and how are you working in the midst of this challenging circumstance that I'm in? We can ask questions. God, what do you want me to learn from this? God, what do you want to teach me about my own self-reliance and my own pride? God, how are you working in this challenge to help me to trust you more, to be able to recognize your faithfulness, to be able to claim your promises? What, God, do you want to do in my heart through this difficult thing that I'm facing? Can you think about what difficult circumstance you're in right now and and how um, you could be discerning how God is working behind the scenes in whatever it is that you're going through to strengthen you or to free you or to develop your character or to show you more about Jesus. My husband and I um, are going through a season of unemployment. He is, at least. I say we because he supports our family, even though I work. And he's been out of a job since October. It's October 1st. And um, it's a difficult season when you don't know what's coming next. There's a lot of pressure in that season, because there's a lot of unanswered questions. You know, I think about, well, when will he get another job? I think about how much of our savings will we actually go through before he gets another job? I think about, well, and where will that job be? What if it's out of town and he has to travel a lot and he's not home as much? You know, what if it isn't financially sufficient for our current needs? I think about um, just all of these questions, and they create pressure. These unknown circumstances create pressure. And yet at the same time, in the midst of all of that, there has been this sweet dependence on the Lord. There's been a a more fervent desire to pray together as we do pray in the mornings, but there's more oomph behind it because there's more desperate need. Um, there's a, a deeper desire to remember how God has been faithful in all the years past, to trust him again in an unknown circumstance, to believe that he is blessing, to witness uh, aspects of humility and dependence that he is stirring up again in our hearts. And it's, it's actually a beautiful thing. It's actually an amazing, sweet season because of this difficulty that we are facing And we believe that nothing can thwart the blessing of God on his children. And that God wastes nothing in teaching us how to live by greater faith and dependency in him. So will you ask God to show you how he is blessing you in the midst of your present difficulty? And then will you thank him for his kindness and his love towards you? And will you be patient to wait and see rather than to freak out and fear, to be patient to say, okay, Lord, I know you're working in this difficult chapter and I'm going to trust that until this chapter is over, you are working to teach me and you are with me and you are blessing me despite all of the circumstances that want to convince me otherwise. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, let's look at the next section When Pharaoh's plan A doesn't work, which is to oppress the adults, he turns to plan B, which is genocide. He decides he's going to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys who are born. His idea at this time is that he could then absorb the whole Israeli population into the Egyptian culture, because if, let's say, all the baby boys are killed, then the baby girls grow up, and they need to marry, and they only have, he- they only have Egyptian men to marry, then he's able to absorb that whole Hebrew nation into Egypt, and of course, that would be the end, right, of God's chosen people. And that, of course, has always been Satan's agenda. It's his agenda throughout the course of history has always been to annihilate God's people. So it's no surprise that this pharaoh has that in mind. Verse 15, it says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. It's funny, we don't know whether these midwives were actually Egyptian midwives or Hebrew midwives, but their names are Hebrew names. So Shipra means beauty and Pua means splendor. And it just makes me giggle every time I read that verse because I think of all the pharaohs who ever led mighty dynasties in Egypt. We never know one of their names. We never know. They're just pharaoh. And here we have two lowly midwives whose names are spoken in Scripture for all of eternity, Shipra and Pua. So Pharaoh commands them to, he's basically saying, either twist the baby's neck or suffocate the baby as they come out and then present it to the mother as stillborn. But it says the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, so, but let the male children live. The midwives revered God And acknowledged that he was the giver of life. They believed that life was his to give and life was his to take. And their fear of God trumped their fear of Pharaoh. Even though they themselves could have been killed for their disobedience to him. In verse 18 it says, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Did you think that's true? I don't know. Maybe, maybe in some instances, the women shot those babies out so hard and fast that the (laughs) midwives couldn't get there fast enough. But my guess is that's not completely true. And then we have to ask ourselves then, well, weren't the midwives then guilty of civil disobedience? They had disobeyed their leader, Was that a sin? Doesn't the Bible tell us that we're to obey our governing authorities? Yes. But the New Testament also tells us that our obedience must never violate our conscience. And that when the laws of God are contrary to the laws of man, that we must obey God rather than man. And that's exactly what they did. And it says in verse 20, So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong and because the midwives feared God he gave them families he gave them families of their own the midwives were not blessed for lying god doesn't lie god doesn't condone lying but they were blessed for fearing him more than they feared pharaoh and they risked their own lives to do what was right and god blesses them in three ways so the first way he blesses them is that pharaoh actually accepted their story he believed them he received that that was what was truly happening The second thing was that the the Israelites continued to multiply and grow strong. So he continued to bless his people. And then the third thing was that he gave them families of their own. Did they not have families of their own? I don't know. But that seemed to be a sweet blessing that he gave them their their own children. In verse 22 it says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. Okay, now everybody is being mandated to kill the baby boys. He says, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast him into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So now everybody is commanded to participate in the genocide of these Hebrew baby boys. I actually think that it was at this moment when Pharaoh sealed the death of his own firstborn son. He has, in commanding that all of the firstborn sons or all of the baby boys in God's people be annihilated, I wonder, did he not provoke God in that moment to what would become the last plague, where all the firstborn sons of Egypt will die during the Passover? I think there's something very, very important, what we see here between Pharaoh's defiance against God's people and what happens in the final judgment. We'll get there in a few weeks. Certainly, this is a tragedy for Israel. Israel. Don't be mistaken. Many, many Hebrew boys died. Many died. And we're just reminded again that powerful people have tried to stop God's plan by killing babies. Do you remember Herod? When he was threatened about the Messiah coming, he ordered that all the baby boys be killed in Jesus' day. And in, even in this day, God saves Moses, a baby boy who was um, supposed to be killed. He saves him to be the deliverer of Egypt, of Israel, excuse me, just the way he saved Jesus to be the deliverer of the world. No human king, no president, no ruler, no one can thwart God's plans and promises. Those who defy him do face judgment, but those who revere him will be blessed. And that's what I feel like the midwives teach us. They teach us that we are to honor God with our lives, and God will honor, God honors those who fear Him, who revere Him. I like the word "revere" better." Um, but it's biblical. Psalm 103:11 says, "For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. First Samuel 2:30 says, "The Lord declares, "Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor." And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Isn't it amazing? As you revere God, as you honor God with your life, he honors you. You become a recipient of his steadfast love. Think about if you were a midwife in that moment and you were commanded to kill one of those babies. What would you have done? Would you have had the courage to not obey Pharaoh and to obey God instead? Have you ever been in a situation where someone asks you to do something and you know that it, you are going to disobey God if you do it, and yet that person has power over you in this world, and you feel that tension of, I, if I don't obey this person, I'm going to be in trouble, but what will God think? I remember when I was um, just out of college in my first job, I won't remind you of the company at this point, but... I had a boss who had been uh, 25 years my senior, and every month as I was turning in my expense reports, I was turning in just exactly what my expenses were. And he called me on the phone one day, and he said, I need you to pad that expense report that you're turning in, because it is so much lower than the expense report I'm turning in. And I need you to add a whole bunch of stuff onto your expense report so it looks more in alignment with the expense report I turn in for my territory. And I was like, I couldn't do it. I'd grown up in a home business where stealing could devastate a, 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 a company. You know, my dad had hardware stores. When his people stole from him, it was devastating. And I just couldn't steal in that way. But I felt that tension, that pressure of my boss telling me, you got to start adding some false stuff to your expense report so it doesn't make me look like I'm stealing, which he was. How do you fear God? How do you revere him? How do you honor him as the highest priority of your life? Now, you need to know that if you've received Christ as your Savior, the reason I like revere better than fear is because if you have received Christ as your Savior, you don't need to ever fear God. You will never face him for judgment. You will never face him for punishment for your sins. That's been taken care of in Christ. Christ is your mediator. He stands between you and God the judge, and you, you, you're, you are um, free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. But there's a reverence, there's a revering of God that is a bit of a fear and trembling, but it's not in an afraid I'm going to get punished. It's just an awe of worship, of gratitude, uh, of marveling at who he is, of so being in awe of him that you're willing to disappoint man so that you don't disappoint God. How do you display that kind of reverence in your life? How do you speak about God to other people? How do you allocate your time in your own daily life to show that it matters, that He matters? How are you prioritizing your relationship with Him? Not because you have to, because it's a a New Year's resolution, but because you actually enjoy Him. You actually want to spend time with Him. Psalm 147, says, But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Is that you? Do you take pleasure in him? Well, let's look at baby Moses and what Moses' parents did to trust in God's plan. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, Fast forward to Exodus 6 verse 20, we find out that Amram took as his wife Jochebed his father's sister and she bore him Aaron and Moses. So yes, he married his aunt. That's kind of weird. Um, Marrying within the family at that particular time wasn't known to be wrong because you remember God hadn't given his Ten Commandments yet. He hadn't given his rules and laws for holy living, so they didn't know any better. Later on, it would become clear that God didn't want you marrying within the family system. But Jochebed and Amram were both people of faith. We know that because not only of what they did, but also because of their names. Amram's name means exalted people, and Jochebed's name means the honor of Jehovah. So they were people who we believe followed the one true God of Israel. They were faithful people. And they were, But they were raising their family in really difficult times because at this point in time um, in this history of Israel, the Israelites had been living under Egypt now for all of these years. They had been forgetting about their God. They had been starting to worship the God of the Egyptians. They were worshiping idols. And so faithful people in this culture was uh, not the norm. So it's significant that these two parents were really faithful people. And they have two children already. Miriam, we believe, is around eight or ten. And Aaron is three. And then Moses is born. Verse 2 says, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Looking forward at, at, at Hebrews 11, verse 23, we know that this is recorded as a great act of faith. Because it says that by faith, Moses when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So Moses' parents, they revered God. They honored him with their actions. The baby was special. He was beautiful. Maybe he had an intelligence behind his eyes that they saw, but there was something about them where they believed that God had a plan for this baby and they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. But can you imagine how difficult it was trying to navigate hiding their son and going against the king? Because remember, at this point, everybody is mandated to kill the Hebrew baby boys. Anybody, neighbor, market person, anybody who saw that you had a baby boy was mandated to kill him. So how are they going to keep this baby away from the Egyptian community? Think of the pressure that these parents are under. By defying Pharaoh's orders, they're not only putting their own lives at risk, but they're also risking that their other two children could be killed. And then there was a time when they finally felt that they couldn't hide him any longer. And so they devised a plan. I love the fact that when we walk with God, he gives us wisdom and discernment and strategy and planning. He is a God of order and he's a God of strategy. And we see this in how they devised this plan. In verse 3, it says, When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what could be done to him. So Jochebed is obeying the letter of the law. She's throwing her child into the Nile. But she's not quite doing it the way Pharaoh intended Instead, she's very strategically calculating how to do this. She's trusting in the providence of God. She's putting him in a basket among the reeds. She takes this muck from the river, and she coats the basket with it. It's like a tar-like substance, so it becomes waterproof. And then she lines it with something soft, like hay or a cloth. And then she deliberately positions it in a very shallow part of the river, in the reeds, away from the crocodiles. Um, where it wouldn't float away, but it would be very near to where the princess did her bathing. Um, it It was at a strategized place in a strategized time for a strategized purpose. And then Miriam is tasked with watching over her baby brother to see what happens next. It says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh then came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. Who is this daughter of Pharaoh? She's an Egyptian princess. And many scholars believe that Moses was born in 1525 BC, which would mean that the Pharaoh at that time was Tutmost, He was the Pharaoh. And his favorite daughter was Hatshepsut. She would have been the princess at that time. And she had a private bathing place in the river. Um, The river was a common place where people hung out. It's where they did probably their laundry and everything. But she had a private place, it was guarded, secluded from strangers. Surely, can you imagine how tense the moment was as Jochebed is waiting to know what happened to her baby? Miriam is watching. the prince Would the princess find the baby? If she did, how would she respond? I imagine that Jochebed was just praying and praying and praying that God would give her this overwhelming love of a mother's heart the moment she heard that baby's cry. She saw the basket among the weeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him, compassion. And she said, this is one of the Hebrew's children. Now she knows right away this baby is a Hebrew, and she knows that her father has mandated that all Hebrew babies be killed. So immediately something is stirring in her heart that she is taking this baby, and she is violating her father's will. I think it's so interesting how all through scripture, it seems like when God wants to do something really, really mighty in the world, he starts with a baby. Think about about Isaac, the long-awaited baby of Abraham and Sarah. Think about Joseph. Not quite the baby, Benjamin, but when Joseph came into the world, think of what God did through one life. Think about Samuel, the long-awaited baby of Hannah. Think about John the Baptist we've talked about in Luke, leaping in, in the belly of his mother at the presence of Jesus before they were even born. And think about John the Baptist's life. Think about Jesus coming into the world as a baby. It seems like God does great things through small things. It says in verse seven. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, "Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you?" She never mentions that the nurse is the child's mother, and, it's, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "Go, say so." To, so the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages." So the woman took the child and nursed him. Oh, can you imagine what that was like for Moses' mother to know that she was going to get to nurse her own child? I mean, I'm sure she saw him. She probably wanted to wrap her arms around him. She probably wanted to praise God. But do you know in that moment, she had to approach as if she didn't know him. She could show no signs of affection, no signs of a mother's love. She had to be disinterested, cool, calm, and collected, she could show no um, affection for his cries. She could have no trembling hands, no sweating heartbeat. She had to, for Moses' sake, act as a disinterested person doing a job for the princess. By the grace of God, though, she not only got her child back, she got sanctioned um, as an official way from the princess. She got wages. She got paid for taking care of him. And best of all, she was given three to five years, the most formative years of his life, to have her in in her home and to teach her about the one true God of Israel. But then the day came where she had to go back to the palace. She had to send him through the palace gates. And she had to give him, her son, to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It says in verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that would have been for her to send her son to now be Pharaoh's daughter's son? And yet God, in the midst of that difficult situation, God was working providentially behind the scenes of all of it because he had great plans for Moses. Moses was educated In the Egyptian school, he was actually being groomed to be the next pharaoh. Pharaoh's daughter wanted him to be the next pharaoh. And so all of the schooling and education and training and military training he received was meant to make him the next pharaoh. And yet, and well, Acts 7.22 says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. But God had other plans for him. God would use, think about it, his education, his leadership training, his administrative gifts, his understanding of the Egyptian culture. He would use all of that to lead his people, God's people, through the wilderness for 40 years. And who better to lead the Israelites in the face of their Egyptian enemies than someone who was trained himself to be an Egyptian general? Amazing. God wasted nothing in Moses' life to make him the man that he needed him to be. And that's the same thing for us. He uses every circumstance of our lives for his best plans and our greatest good. Now, he doesn't ordain. I want you to know this. He does not ordain the evil deeds of men. He does not ordain the broken, hurtful, harmful sufferings that we experience in this world. He doesn't ordain it, but he reaches into it And he buys it back to himself for his glory and for our good. That's redemption. That's the miracle of God. Is that he is constantly working in all of the very challenging circumstances of our lives to take the hardest things and to use them for his glory and for our good. The truth is, I love this truth. God can engineer great events out of small acts of faith. God can engineer great events out of small acts of faith. What small acts of faith in your life in 2019 could God engineer into a great event? What if we reoriented our thinking about our New Year's resolutions and made small acts of faith in God our number one priority in 2019? What if we flipped it all upside down? I I want to suggest, as we close, 10 different ideas of ways in which you could practice small acts of faith that would radically change you from the inside out in your relationship with God. Now, this is personal. This is my list. This is the list that I made for me. These are my 10 small acts of faith. Um, But I want to share them with you. I want to encourage you to take one or two or three for yourself or to go home today and make up your own list. But let me share with you my list. Number one is word. I want to spend time every day pondering the word of God. Number two is worship. I want to tell God every day about his greatness and faithfulness as I notice it in each and every day. Number three is prayer. Prayer. I want to ask God to help me in all the areas where I feel helpless. And let me tell you, that is huge. (laughs) There's more things I feel helpless in than things I feel able. Number four is evangelism. I want to pray for three people that I know every day to come to know Jesus. Number five is praise. I want to notice the beauty of God's world all around me and praise him for his creative glory. Number six is hope. I want to choose hope each moment of the day to replace sorrow and despair. I want to look up. I don't want to let the world pull me down and round me over. I want to look up in each day and choose hope. Silence. I want to find moments of silence to be alone with my own thoughts and to listen to the whisper of the Holy Spirit within me. Fast. We heard an amazing message on Sunday about fasting. I want to abstain from the appetites of my flesh and experience the victory of godly discipline. Fellowship. I want to love other people as Christ loves me and be fully present with each person in each moment. And ten is gratitude. I want to express thanksgiving or gratitude to God for every 24-hour cycle of blessing. In every 24 hours, I want to notice how God has been good and present with me and thank him for it. Which small act of faith might enliven, awaken your relationship with God in 2019? Bring joy, bring excitement, bring um, hope into your relationship with him. The very best thing that we can do in 2019, yes, exercise is great and eating better is great and health is great. All of those things are great. Reading and family time and no smoking and drinking and all of those things, those are good. But the very, very best thing that we can do is small acts of faith that allow God the ability to engineer great things in our life. And I guarantee you it's going to be a change in your own heart, in your own desires. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for Moses, for the story of Exodus 1 and 2, for the faith of the midwives, for the faith of Moses' parents, for the mighty things that you have done In their lives and in our lives. We believe, we agree that you are God. We want to honor you with our lives. We want to attend to you with our lives. We want to submit our lives to you in 2019. We want to experience you waking us up to who you are, filling us with your Holy Spirit, enabling us to do mighty things in your kingdom. We want to be transformed from the inside out. And Lord, we want to trust that in all the difficult circumstances of our lives, you are working to bless us. You're working to grow our character. You're working to manifest your presence. You're working to drive us deeper into prayer and dependency on you. You're working to awaken our minds to how faithful you've been every minute of our day thus far, every minute of our life, you are at work in mighty ways. And Lord, we want to trust you more. So would you do something miraculous? Would you meet us in a way like you've never met us before and transform our life in you? It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.